Hello, I'm Boyan Fierst. And I'm Rebecca Caho. And you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Okay, today we're going to take you on a trip to a true Canadian institution. This is a hallowed place for thousands and thousands of Canadians. And some might actually argue it's one of the most important spots in sort of the sense of what it means to be from this place. All right, you know what? I'm just going to play some sound here. What could possibly be more Canadian and more rural than a sound of crowing stones on a flawless sheet of ice? Yeah, you've got the brooms sweeping, the crack of the stones colliding, and then the commanding voice of the skip. And speaking of voices? Yeah, we've got a pretty great episode lined up for you today. I think we do. It turns out that rural crowing clubs are about so much more than just crowing. Yeah, and our guide through this episode will be Dr. Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo. Yes, she has conducted one of the most comprehensive study of rural crowing clubs in Canada. Yeah, and this is how she describes uh, what, what they're all about. Curling clubs are powerful places for community gatherings. And that's what we're going to be talking about today about the role curling clubs play in rural communities. We'll be talking about where they are today. And what the future may hold. And to help us go back, way back, we talked with my neighbors growing up on Beaconsfield Road, just outside Burgessville in southwest Ontario. I am Betty Ryder, and um, we live in a, in a woods <laughs> just north of Burgessville, so we're pretty rural. And um, we belong to the Norwich District Curling Club. I'm Norm Ryder, and I'm the bookend of Betty for over 50 years. I loved talking with Betty and Norm. They're my new favorite people. (laughs) Uh, Betty was a crower since high school. When they got married, it became something that two of them did together. Uh, Norm was a football player. Yeah, they're kind of a classic couple. They're a lot of fun. They're great people. And uh, yeah, they live pretty rural in terms of, you know, the context of southwestern Ontario. And even when they were a bit younger, that was a problem for their curling careers. Here's how they describe the problem. It was hard because we could only get Thursday nights and you had to have a babysitter. And in those days, you always had two draws, and they're supposed to start at seven, but they never did because most of the guys were farmers and milk cows. So we might start at 7.20 or 7.30, so that meant the next crew is starting where they would be on the ice at 9.30 or so to start the game. So you didn't get home till 11.30 at night. So it's tricky to get babysitters during the week. So I guess some things never change. Yeah, this, this is ringing a couple bells as the mom of, a, of an almost four-year-old. You know what? All I can say is it gets better. Our older <laughs> one is now able to babysit the younger ones. So, you know, we go out on dates. Yeah, that's heavenly. Well, some things never change. Many other things did. And uh, this is how Betty and Norm spoke about changes that they saw at their club. When we 
started, there was a waiting list to get into the club, and they actually do a circle around Norwich. So you could, they would take the inside before the outside. And I would think we had about 140-plus members at that time or larger. There was, there was two draws every night, and there was full, five, five nights a week. Wow. And now we're down to approximately 80-some members, give or take. And so with those numbers falling, many rural curling clubs are in danger of disappearing. This isn't, uh, this isn't a phenomenon that's limited to Norwich Curling Club. It's something that we know is happening all across the country. So Heather Mayer, the researcher from Waterloo, is concerned that when we lose curling clubs, we're losing more than just a place to, to play a sport. After visiting dozens and dozens of clubs across the country, she really does see them as as adding something much more important to some of those rural places. Yeah, and I should probably mention, I interviewed Heather uh, about a year ago, um, a little bit more than a year ago, at um, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation Conference um, in Guelph. Mm. And for whatever reason, there is this really strange noise throughout her interview, and I apologize for that. But the things she has to say are so interesting. What I saw in clubs was um, a, a place outside of your home and your work where you have a relationship. And, and not just the people in that club, but the space. There's a club in Newfoundland. I can talk about Newfoundland all day because what happened after the, uh, the Gushu team won gold in Italy in 2006 interest in curling went through the roof. It doesn't always translate into memberships, but interest in curling went up. And in Newfoundland, there started to spring up what were called arena clubs. And arena clubs are uh, efforts by volunteers who don't have a specific curling club in their community to turn over the arena ice into curling ice. Now, that's a ton of work. If you've ever been on curling ice, you know it's not the same surface. So the hockey team would finish at this one particular club at 8 o'clock at night on a Sunday, and then eight volunteers, or maybe even less, would go down to the rink after the, after the Zamboni did, did its bit, and they'd spend four hours turning the arena ice into curling ice. And then the juniors would curl after school, and the middle teams would curl on Mondays, and then there'd be a game Monday night. And then they would come back, and they'd turn it back into arena ice. And so that is, that's just the most magnificent example of community engagement I've ever seen. And they just felt so strongly about wanting to provide that experience for especially the youth in the town. I'm so glad that Heather mentioned Newfoundland and Tim Gushu. Me too. And uh, I'm happy to say that we actually were able to speak with one of those gold medalists, an Olympic gold medalist. And he's actually my current city ward councillor. He just won in the election this fall, uh, Mr. Jamie Korab. I started curling when I was 11 years old. I was in grade seven and outside the auditorium of the high school I went to, there was a sign that said free curling. And I was there with my friend Sean Vaders and we liked free stuff, so we decided to go. Uh, headed down to the curling club, very first time, there was probably 100 to 150 kids there. You had to get to the curling club early for junior curling. This is when I was about 12 or 13 because there was only one box of sliders. No one had shoes. Uh, and there was only one really good one. It was an all-Canada full slider and you had to get there first. And there was a stampede, a big crush, people run into the... It, it was literally in a beer box. That's where they kept the sliders, funny enough, for junior curlers. Isn't that a great story? It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie also talked about how important the club was for him as a kid. 
it literally changed his life. Yeah, and, and there were so many reasons for that. For me, it was great. Um, you know, I grew up, you know, I grew up like probably like most kids in Canada. I wanted to play hockey because hockey's so big. Um, you know, mom wouldn't put me in hockey. It was too expensive at the time and it was too rough. She just went on the too expensive side, but uh, we just never had the money for it. So uh, curling was great to start because I think I paid 20 bucks for my first year of curling. And in the next season, I think it cost me 30 bucks and my shoes cost 35. So I played a full season for $65, whereas minor hockey registration was however many hundred and you haven't even bought your skates and gear. So, you know, starting off where I was so young and they, there was no junior league to play in here in St. John's, if you got a junior league, we were in the men's league or the super league. Uh, so, you know, you're playing against some of your teachers and, uh, you know, I remember we played uh, Mr. Anesty. As I got to call him Jonas, his first name, but at, I still called him Mr. And, uh, you know, we beat him, but it was, it was awkward then. The, the next day when we had science class and, uh, you know, I'm a 14-year-old and I beat my teacher, right, in curling. So, but no, it was a lot of fun. Um, the curling club was the place where I went. I ended up getting the keys of the place. Um, to go and help and work. I, I started working at the club and helping prepare the ice, but it was, so I had the key, so I went and practiced whenever I wanted. It was, uh, I'd go down there and prepare a sheet of ice, and you know, it was kind of my place where I went. It was, I guess, for lack of better words, it was my happy place. It was the place where I was comfortable, and uh, you know, I, I learned a lot of things, and it taught me a lot there at that uh, curling club, at the old, uh, well, it used to be the uh, the uh, CBN curling club, and then it ended up changing to Rexplex, but yeah. So there's a real sense of independence that it sounds like developed for that young kid both through the work that he put into it through the actual playing of the sport and then also with all of those social connections it would have just given him this feeling of of you know being truly centered in the place where he lived yeah and absolutely he was so adamant talking about it about that sense of place mm. that a curling club mm -hmm. gave him yeah, and you go out on the ice, you know, your your social status didn't matter, how much you made didn't matter. Uh, you you kind of just went out there and it was this, uh, you know, the movie Men With Brooms that were out there. There was a, a great long quote, which I can't remember the whole thing from. We can help with that. We can help with that. YouTube can remember anything. <laughs> it's 42 pounds of polished granite, the beveled underbelly, and a handle a human being can hold. And it may have no practical purpose in and of itself but it is a repository of human possibility and if it's handled just right it will exact a kind of poetry for 10 years i've drilled for oil in 93 countries five different continents and not once have i done anything to equal the grace of a well-thrown rock sliding down a sheet not once Okay, let's cue the violins. <laughs> Poetry in Iraq. Right. <laughs> right. But you know, the sad thing is that the curling club in Harbor Grace, where Jamie Korab got his start, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, let me play one more Korab story. He's just such a great storyteller. Uh, I, I still wish there was one back home um, to go play in because I've, I have a ton of fond memories of just junior curling but as well the, the, some of the fun bond spiels we played in. I remember the very first bond spiel we played in and I think I won a box of Mirage Bars. Uh, I believe it was a local, it might have been Pal Supermarket donated the prizes so it was like a case of Pepsi, a box of Mirage Bars, a case of chips. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a box of Mirage Bars was the very first thing I won and they usually call them toaster spiels but, and I have won a toaster curling way back in the day, but, uh, and I just missed those things. They had a great Paddy's Day spiel, they had a men's business spiel, uh, and it was at the time, you know, it was a great focal point in the community. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the business people, a lot of the regular people, 
uh, curl there. And I remember as being as young as probably six years old. My mom only played curling once a year. No one in my family ever really curled. I had a great aunt who curled way back in the day. Uh, she passed away when I was really young. But I remember going down with mom. She curled in the lady spiel. And uh, she only curled once a year. Mom was not an athlete. And I just remember being down around the club and just really enjoyed the atmosphere down there. Everyone was real, you know, it was a lot of fun. Tons of kids down and running around. And I think that's when I started curling why it was almost, I almost felt like I've done this before even though I hadn't. So it's really a shame that there's no curling club because I get so many fond memories of that place. Yeah, I love the idea of that sort of inclusion and the idea that someone doesn't have to be an elite athlete but can still participate in what's happening in the community. But the sad thing is that the story of curling club closures is pretty common these days in rural Canada. Yeah, and you know what? The other thing I love is that you can win a box of Mirage bars. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? (laughs) (laughs) But it's true that it's not surprising in many ways that current clubs are closing. When you look at the aging demographic of rural regions, and we were lucky that you were able to hook us up with your old buddy from the farm.com days. Why don't you tell me more about Jerry? Sure thing. So I met Jerry back in the days when I was working at farms.com which was a website that covered all manner of aspects of farming and various different services. Still still out there, so you can look that up if you're interested. But Jerry was one of the sort of IT and technology guys, and he was actually looking at numbers and analytics and all of that kind of information well before it became something that everybody was talking about like we see these days. And interestingly, he also was a serious sports fan but he actually kind of came to it through the numbers which i think is really interesting and curling is his passion i don't think there's anyone i don't know if there's anyone in the universe who knows more about curling than jerry gertz so he actually has a a website called curling zone it's at curlingzone.com and you can find anything that you need to know about curling there he's got videos blogs there's a fantasy league teams scores all that stuff So I don't think there's probably anyone better suited to walk us through some of those numbers related to demographics than Jerry Gertz. No, and he was really fantastic. Listen to this. A lot of the rural clubs especially are are having problems with their age demographic. Right. You know, the average age of club members, you know, is pushing, you know, if they're in their 30s, 40s, they're lucky. Mm. You know, a lot of clubs are into their late 40s, 50s, even, even older average demographic and you know, you can't survive if you don't have uh, a new influx of members coming up. And as a sport, we kind of failed ourselves probably during the 70s, 80s, into the 90s when, you know, the sport was doing very well at that level. Uh, At a competitive level, we had tons of teams participating and playing the game uh, uh, on the tour level. Mm -hmm. And then that filtered down into the clubs and stuff. But, you know, you look at... uh, it's kind of a society issue, I think, in general, and, and curling has just not done a good job of promoting itself to, to keep people coming in. You know, one of the, um, you know, well, you know, it's kind of the thing, you know, you open the doors and you expect people to just show up. You know, you got to market yourself nowadays. And we're, we're dealing with a smaller number of people who actually participate in sport these days. And one of the studies that I always look to and, and, and talk about was done by uh, StatsCan and stats can and they've, they've kind of portrayed over the years where going back to 1992 uh, 30 was it 45% of Canadians participated in some sort of amateur sport mm. 
down to 1998, that dropped to 34%. 2005 was 28%. And in 2010, that was as low as uh, 26%. Wow. So you're talking about numbers of people. You know, you're, we're, we've got a lot more things people can do nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're competing for, for you know, a user base that, uh, that is shrinking, that wants to participate in sport. Mm-hmm. And so for, for curling clubs, they have to go out and they have to actually fight for these members. Jerry also talked about the fact that curling as a sport in Canada, not just in rural areas, is in a very different place than in the rest of the world. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Apparently, the sport is booming in Europe, United States. It's even getting a foothold in places where you would never expect it, like the Middle East and South Korea. However, in Canada, we're struggling a bit. And actually, Jerry thinks that curling is in some ways damaged by some of that past success and by some of the stereotypes that have been able to be built up around who curls. The sport has already got some some stereotypes that kind of hurt it to a degree that uh, we work hard to try and overcome the athleticism of the sport, the, you know, how you could drink and smoke and party all the time and, and participate in the game at a high level without really being athletes. But that's not really true anymore. And historically, those things were true, but that has changed quite some time ago. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we laughed along with Betty and Norm when they told us what it used to be like versus how it is now. Yeah. And, and they've got experience with both. <laughs> <laughs> Here are Betty and Norm. I love this story. Uh, people drink, don't drink much at the curling club anymore. Uh, with the, the rules the way they are, uh, people tend to have one and... The odd person would have two, and that's it. Uh, they don't drink like they used to at 3 o'clock in the morning and play cards and all that stuff they used to do because uh, the farmers aren't there anymore. Driving, drinking and driving. And drinking and driving, no one's doing that. So the, the bar does not make much money, but it's there as yeah. a service. Yeah, and that would be about that because we want to keep the club open and that would be a big change from the past if if i if my memory serves me correctly (laughs) it used to be a rocking and rolling place (laughs) (laughs) i remember once upon a time you had to do bartender duty for a week and these farmers would come in and they want to you know they want to play cards after they they curl and they want to drink, you know, and you get home. And then, and then you had to do, those days you had to do a bank a reconciliation every night and do a deposit uptown with the bag. You know, you drop the bag in the chute. Uh-huh. So you'd be there at one o'clock in the morning, still counting, serving, the, money. counting the money and getting your, your count ready because they had to audit out. And then you took it uptown and put it in the bank and then the next night, voila, you were back bartending again. <laughs> <laughs> A long week, I tell you. Yeah. So, listen, alcohol and sports, that's not a new concept. But I can't really think of very many other sports where it's been such an open and accepted part of how things happen. It's very much out in the open, and it's very much, it was very much part of why people were there. It was that social thing, and that involved having some drinks. Yeah, and Heather Mayer talked about that as well, and how, how in curling, they're not really ashamed of that legacy. They recognize that it was what it was, and they're kind of moving on and building on it. Here's Heather. 
So the alcohol thing is really interesting, and and I'm not. I don't want to. It's, whenever I would talk about this research, and I've, I've presented this at sport conferences and places all over the place, someone always has to trot out an example of someone going down the ice with a cigarette in one hand and a beer bottle in the other. And if anybody's listening to this, I know they're chuckling because I know they know these stories. But what has happened in the in because of drunk driving laws, insurance rules, there's been a lot of policy changes since, particularly I think like the, the 1990s, that have made it really difficult for the clubs to still to still kind of be the local bar. There is still drinking, there still can be excessive drinking, but clubs are trying really hard, and the National Association is supporting them in this, to make them more community-friendly, more family-friendly, uh, more age-friendly, so they're not sort of these dark, dingy, smoky places anymore. They really aren't. By the time, I couldn't have done this project if, it was, if they were filled with cigarette smoke. Um, I enjoy a beer every now and then, so that happened nicely, but you could be at the club at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and there might be one person having a drink, and there'll be 15 people having a cup of coffee and a bowl of soup. So it, it just didn't, it doesn't have that feeling. But I also heard lots of stories, you know, tragedies, people driving home from bond spiels with you know, too much alcohol, drunk driving accidents. There, you know, there is a legacy there. But people aren't afraid of it. They don't, they don't hide it. They talk about it because they've realized that they've come kind of through, um, you know, what, what in some clubs is a really tragic um, event. So, so th- those things are there. And I also think the alcohol thing is really changing because the image of the sport has changed so much. There's a lot of jokes about when when there were first attempts to make curling an Olympic sport that uh, Ed Wernick, who was who was on the men's team, there's a whole discussion about that, but the joke was that, you know, he wasn't fit enough to do a sit-up. Now look at those teams. Like, these guys are, the, the Northern Ontario team in particular, are cardboard cutouts of physical fitness. Like, you know, it's, it's the, the sport has gone so far in terms of health and activity and the image of the players themselves, the high-level players out on the ice, is changing how the sport the image of the sport and that's trickling down I think to the local club experience so I don't I just I just don't think alcohol is really kind of the issue uh, that it used to be yeah and uh, Jerry told us that even and with all those changes to you know sort of the old ways the one thing that does certainly continue is that the curling clubs really are still a great place to meet people yeah that sense of community is really still embedded into the clubs it's what makes our sport great the the community feel about uh, uh, grassroots club curling you know it, it's something where for for people who are new to a community the best place for them to probably go is drop into the curling club yeah. and pick up a league because the way curling works you know you play your game you sit down afterwards uh with your opponents typically you have a drink together you you know you talk and you meet new people every week you know it's a it's a great way to make new friends in a place that you're new mm-hmm. um if you're somebody that's looking for something to do to get out into the community and network mm-hmm. you know you're you're a business person and wanting to to expose your business to more people join the curling club you know heather mentioned the same thing and Curling clubs are changing, and that change is sometimes quite drastic because you're having people who never curled before coming to the clubs, and you have people like me who come from places that just don't curl mm-hmm. coming to the clubs and trying the game. Yeah, and that can be a learning experience for everybody. Absolutely. In the clubs, uh, and, I, and I've done work with some urban clubs on trying to help them. Um, my, what I say is my goal would be the makeup of the club 
reflects the makeup of the community. So if there is a lot of uh, populations that are visible minorities, then the club should too. So that's that's a challenge. But it's also a bit like the alcohol thing. It's not a challenge that the clubs are running away from, for the most part. And I, I've been hired in a number of instances to work with clubs to help them do that. Now, they're being strategic. They know that their population is moving along and they're not curling as much, so they've got to be more diverse. But it's also a genuine love of the game where they want to share it with people. And so we haven't had a whole lot of success in terms of bringing people in who are what I would call non-traditional curlers. But I've talked to a lot of clubs about building what we call their cultural competency. So if you, if the, if the membership, if the leadership of the club says, we want to broaden our audience or our, our membership and we want to attract people of diverse backgrounds, they have got to be prepared to support those people. So, and we did, we did kind of these weird focus groups with people who wanted to curl but had never curled and who were visible minorities. And it was a really teeny tiny study, but we got a good sense of what was going on. And we did this work in Brampton, uh, in Ontario. And what some of those folks said to us was, when I walk in there, A, I don't see anybody who looks like me. And B, everybody looks at me like I don't belong there. So we've got to work on that, you know, and I'm, and that's what I mean about clubs. It can't be as simple as opening your doors and letting everybody come in. You have to be prepared to support people. You know, a lot of new families who've come to Canada want to do family recreation. They don't want to be in an environment where there's a lot of drinking or there's only evening activities. You have to be careful about that. But the other thing is that because curlers love the game so much, they, I think they genuinely feel that if you just come in and try it, you'll fall in love with it and all will be well. You know, for somebody who doesn't curl, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that love of game that we heard from everybody can be contagious. I think so too. And there's a serious desire to welcome new people. These are extroverts. They're people who want to talk to people. It's a social thing. Just like Betty and Norm pointed out, it would be hard to find a friendlier place in many situations. We're very friendly. <laughs> and, we, and we eat well. We, we are known for our food. When we put on a bond spiel, we go above and beyond for a home-cooked meal that most people uh, don't get when caterers come in to other clubs and piecemeal stuff out. Norwich is known for its friendly backcountry hosting of good food, good times, good ice. Uh, very accommodating, and uh, it seems to draw people in. You know, I really want to go crowing at Norm's and Betty's crowing club. We're going to have to make that happen at some point, because I'm sure they'd love to host you. And also, I should note that Norm is an amazing DIY at-home beer brewer. Hmm. People come from miles to learn from Norm. He is for real. <laughs> I think there is another episode we have sometimes in our future. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and, and the other thing is, if we came and said, hey, can we come over? They would welcome us in. And that sort of friendliness, you know, the idea of drawing people in from neighboring communities and, uh, you know, as there are less clubs, opening up to to communities where who have lost clubs for example i think that you know that's something that the rural clubs have that is really meaningful today and you know we're a connected world but a lot of the connections we have you know they're on a screen yeah that's true and heather pointed out that it's often people with families who are now looking to join a curling club because they're looking for something to do as a family yeah not everybody joins the club for the sport they like they like the actual activity of curling, but they're there 
way more to be social and to meet people in their community and to build their networks. And so it isn't as simple as loving what it feels like to throw a rock down the ice and the success of, of doing, you know, having it do what you wanted it to do, which can be really thrilling. But it's more about walking into a community space and feeling like someone cares about you and has paid attention to whether or not you were there last week and is asking about your son who's at university. You know, it's those relationships I think people are really seeking. It's especially true for people in their mid-30s kind of moving forward into their 50s who are in, in a lot of ways turning back to the club um, to become kind of members because they're seeking that connection. Yeah, and it's also really important for many of these clubs because they are volunteer organizations in a lot of cases. That is so true. And I want to play another clip from Betty and Norm. These clubs, like any community organization, there's so much work. Yeah. And I think the story they tell us, it just kind of goes to show you, it just gives you that little taste of, hmm, didn't mean to do that. It gives you a little taste. A bit of a pun. <laughs> a You're setting pun. up the clip. Yes, I am setting up the clip. It gives you a little bit of taste of how much work it actually takes. Mm. We just finished putting on a new roof on the bottom half of the whole arena so that it will not leak. And uh, we, our compressors are replaced and we've replaced the, uh, the header that feeds all the lines for the, uh, for the grind. Um, we're, we're constantly doing upgrades in the curling club. We redid the bar, we redid the lounge area. Um, we had a bequest from uh, Dr. Hall who allowed us to put stainless steel all around the, the, the walls and, and uh, upgrade the kitchen. So I think we have a great facility for a rural club and it's only because it's a volunteer club. So in a, in a nutshell, five or ten percent come out and do the majority of the work and the rest get to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. That's typical of anything. <laughs> We were out of money there for a while, so Betty started cooking these turkey pies. <laughs> and now, 30,000 later, we, we have retired from that activity, but we still help out. Did you just say Every she... They're selling turkey pies, and everybody seems to like them. So we have a, a group of 20-some that show up and assemble the pies, and out they go. And that's sort of good in its own way because it allows people, again, to socially interact and actually do something for the club and the community because a lot of people are on their own, eat, you know, eating on their own and they don't have a nutritious meal. So these, these turkey pies sort of assist them for a meal. Did I hear you right? You said 30,000 turkey pies? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, we cooked, started right from cooking the turkeys to taking the bones out and um, slicing them up and, yeah, and putting them all together. Like but, one year I, I deboned <laughs> 49 turkeys and cooked them in two days at the club. <laughs> oh, man. But before that, it was, you know, like you had to sell tickets. Or right, I mean, such a great story. But it does go to show you how much work it takes to keep that club going. Yeah, and as Betty pointed out, there's really, it's a small number of people who are doing the bulk of the work. 
she actually told us they now have a volunteer bond at the club where members pay 50 bucks at the beginning of the season and then if they do there's there a lot of number of volunteer hours the check comes back and if not it goes into the pot to help support the workings of the club and you know i mean that makes sense because that way everybody contributes something although 50 bucks seems like a very small amount of money given the amount of work that people like betty and norm would put into it it ain't thirty thousand pies no definitely <laughs> not <laughs> so that's where attracting new members really does become important. And Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone spoke quite a bit about volunteer clubs. Here's Jerry. I think a, a volunteer club can be very successful as long as you have the volunteers with A, the expertise, and B, the the hours and time to do it. Mm. You know, if you've got people who are smart enough to do all the marketing and the business part and all everything that comes with that, you know, you're definitely way out ahead. Mm. Um, because, you know, you're getting that expertise at a, at a reduced cost of, you know, I imagine a lot of these volunteers that get compensated in other ways by the club and, and, and stuff like that. But it's the hard part in a lot of places where when you have, when you don't have the volunteer base, that's knowledgeable enough Mm. that, you know, it, you kind of get into that, you know, being stuck in the old ways of doing, doing the business. It becomes a challenge. So I, I think, you know, as long as the volunteer base is strong and, and they have the expertise to do it, you know, even better. Mm-hmm. It's when, you know, you get into these clubs and again, you start talking about the average age demographic of a club, you know, especially a lot of these rural clubs are pushing into the 50s, 60s. The problem you get there is, is you know, the lack of adoption to new technology. You know, social media is a huge driver for for, for everything these days and and it's critical for curling clubs to get out there and promote themselves that way too right so you know it's you know as long as the volunteer base and has a group of people that keep up with the times then uh, yeah I think you know I think volunteer clubs are going to be very successful yeah so he was telling us the clubs are experimenting with a lot of different approaches now to how they attract new members yeah, and for a long, long time, crowing has been great in terms of men and women crowing together and belonging to the plug club together and experimenting with different game formats so that the beginners and newcomers feel more comfortable with the game. One thing that is not often mentioned is that it's a very much an intergenerational sport. Yeah, and that's especially true in rural places. It can really be a glue that keeps people together, and it's also this sort of opening spot for conversations between people who probably wouldn't wouldn't get to know each other otherwise yeah heather mayer from waterloo university talked um, quite a bit about i was in these clubs and i would see a grandmother curling with her daughter curling with her daughter curling with a cousin you know three probably not four but three generations together competing and curling well right like that's there's a there's a generational thing there that's also incredibly rich spending the weekend curling with your grandparents is pretty cool yeah and it's because of this communal aspect and welcoming atmosphere and this sort of general sense of you know everyone being involved and people of different ages coming together on 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 this that Heather said that a lot in a lot of places, curling facilities are becoming more and more important for the mental and physical health of everybody, but especially seniors. Yeah, and that's another reason why it's so important for the 
clubs to attract new members, especially young members who are going to continue to volunteer and to work um, with the club. Yeah, I mean, they need to be there as as fulfilling the things that these seniors who have been so active in the clubs were doing, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. There really does need to be that sort of continuity. So Jerry actually had some suggestions about youth programs, too. He mentioned that cities actually probably are doing a bit better in terms of that, but that there are also a number of rural grassroots clubs that have taken really novel approaches to solving this problem. We need to make sure that young people, kids, are exposed to the game early. And there's a program out there called Rocks and Rings that uh, Chad McMullen out of uh, Toronto manages and, manages and runs for uh, Curling Canada. And he's created a pretty neat business out of it. And and basically they're, they're getting these kits into schools and they, they teach kids about curling. And then the next step is they're working on a program to get these kids out onto the ice, you know, to try the game and, and, and play it. And and, and the biggest thing is, is getting people to understand and know about the sport and then getting them in the door when they're, when they're a little bit older. You know, it's, it, it really is, you know, the perfect sport to, to socially uh, participate in. Unfortunately for a lot of clubs, the problem is, is you got to spend some money to make some money. Right. And these clubs that are kind of stringing it along and holding on for life, it's hard for them to find the money to then, you know, hire somebody to implement all this. Mm. So it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing a little bit to a degree, but you know, any club that, uh, that uh, is doing well, they need to be looking at these things and making sure that they're continuing to, you know, that they're going to continue doing well into the future and putting plans like this into place. You know, Heather said during her research, one of the things that every curling club she walked into was super proud of was the kids mm. and the kids' games. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they all wanted her to see. Most clubs have what's called a junior curling program or even a Little Rocks program, which is awesome because they have smaller stones and they have smaller brooms. And they wear things on their head to protect them uh, so from falling. So kids as young as six, even in, in rural towns, are out there learning the sport. And a lot of clubs... I would go in wanting to know kind of about the socializing components and they would all want me to stick around and talk to the, you know, be part of watching the kids as they curled and talking to the people who coached them because they really felt that was the lifeblood. It's the lifeblood of the clubs because the kids, the, the, the argument is, and I've seen evidence of this, the argument is if kids are exposed to the sport at a young age, they will come back to it at an older age. So they might come back to it in their own hometown if they stayed, but they also might move to another place and join a club there. And I talked to a ton of people who said, I, I grew up in rural Saskatchewan and I curled with my mom. And the second I moved to Regina to go to university, I joined a club. And then I had kids and I had to kind of step back. But now I'm living in so-and-so and I went straight to the club because I know that's the kind of place that I want to be. So there's an ethic of building the sport at the junior level or even younger than that in order to keep the clubs, the rural clubs alive, but also to keep the sport alive. Because there is this sense that they, they've got the skills, they know how special it is, and they, they will be back. We're going to lose them for a while to other stuff, but they'll be back. So it, it's like a gemstone, I think, in, in what people wanted me to see and be aware of and to understand was all of the efforts that get put into maintaining a junior program. Now, that's volunteer labor. Increasingly, they have to take first aid courses. They have to be trained as coaches. You know, there's a lot of investment that the club puts into that. And the people who were doing that were really kind of champions of the sport. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, we've got our, our Olympic gold medalist, Jamie Korab, saying something really similar. He told us, as, as we said earlier, he, he got hooked on curling when he was just 11 years old, and it changed his life. Right, and Jamie said that's the key. You need to get them hooked before they're 15, so that they will be in the sport, and they will continue to participate in the sport. He, incidentally, is still looking for the person who put that poster in his high school and uh, he said if they're out there he would love to buy them a drink okay so if you know who that was please let jamie korab know yeah before we wrap this episode up uh i'd like to give the last word to heather mayer from the university of waterloo i'm going to play a long clip because i think it's a good ending to this episode it starts with her describing how the physical space of a curling club itself is an expression of the entire community Every physical piece in that club, from something on the ice to a gimmick that was rigged up for maintaining the ice to something in the kitchen, they all had stories and they all had histories and they were all like a, like an exemplar of, of ingenuity and resilience. Like they were just like these little packages of stories about what that club needed at that time and someone taking the initiative and putting in the volunteer labor and getting that done. The other thing was... Um, I knew that the clubs are important as non-curling spaces. I knew that there were events that went on in the summer and all these kinds of things. But what I realized was, especially for older adults, and I've tried to make this case to Curling Canada, and I think it's starting to take some traction, they provide a service to the community. Older adults in particular, who have already had kind of a history with the curling club, go into the club on a weekday, on a weekend, to connect socially. You know, I, I was in a club outside of the Ottawa area, and I watched this woman walk in. She's quite frail. She obviously had been away, and four people got up to help her come up the steps into the club, and they all knew that she just had some kind of surgery, and they, they sat her down, and they just sat with her, and they talked to her about how did it go, and oh, I heard that your son was sick too, and oh my goodness, like there was just, it was almost like the old kind of church community feeling where people, someone missed her, and someone connected to her, in a really meaningful way. And I think that we're underestimating clubs could be clubs could be the place where the local nurse goes to talk to and educate and be connected to especially senior citizens in that community. Like clubs could be they already are a gathering place and I think services, health services in particular, could be there to talk to those folks because they're already there, they're already connected, they're already feeling safe. And that's a space where that information could be, you know, and I've tried to say, this isn't a Sport Canada issue. It's, it is, but it's also a Health Canada issue. Like, there's some really important stuff going on there that I think needs more attention. But the other really neat thing about curling that I hadn't anticipated was it keeps adapting itself. It's, an, it's, it's a really remarkable, so wheelchair curling, we're world leaders in wheelchair curling at, at the Olympics. But also, um, as the curler aged, some smart person designed the stick. And the stick, I think in its first iteration, was literally a stick, like a, like a shuffleboard thing, right? Someone couldn't bend over because their, their hips weren't very comfortable. And so they learned, they designed a stick. And now there are stick curling championships. And there's a whole set of rules around stick curling. They're usually typically played just by two people. There are championships all across the province. There are national champions in stick curling. Like It, ha- it seems to be okay with adapting itself. It doesn't hang on to these kind of, oh, that can't be curling. I'm sure some people resisted it, but I met a woman in rural Saskatchewan, and she she was in her 80s, and we're sitting and we're watching the kids curl, and, and she said to me, you know, I curled for 40 years, and then my hips were bad, and I couldn't curl, and I couldn't get down to the club, and she was crying. And she said, and then 
I got the stick, and now I'm back. And she meant sport, but she also meant community. Wow. So it's an individual life cycle. It's a community life cycle thing. We heard about health. We heard about sense of place, belonging. Maybe I'm starting to buy that curling as poetry argument from earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I loved all those stories. I loved talking with Betty and Norm. Yeah, it was great. It really was. So... You listened to another episode of Rural Roots? Yeah, we talked about the importance of curling clubs to rural Canada. We heard from a lot of great people. We heard from Betty and Norm Ryder from Burgessville, Ontario. We heard from Dr. Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo. Jerry Gertz from curlingzone.com and from the London, Ontario area chatted with us. And we also heard from Olympic gold medalist Jamie Korab from right here in St. John's. As always, Rural Roots is produced at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we do that at the CHMR Campus Radio. Yep, we produce this show in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. The show is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. And you can hear us on our website at ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. We are available through your favorite podcasting app and on community and campus radio stations across the country. I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Brian Fierst. Join us again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. I wonder if this is going to be the first and only time we interviewed an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, Maybe not.